This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Now, through the end of September, I'm running a fundraising campaign, trying to raise $4,500 by the end of the month, and right now we're $1,230 into that. So if you're in a place where you can give, you can use the paypal.me link in the show notes, send something to show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or via the post, The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. The show also continues thanks to the ongoing support of our sponsors, Permi Kids, The Fifth World, and The Good Seed Company. You'll find links to all of them in the show notes at thepermaculturepodcast.com. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann, and you're listening to episode 1632, Connect Africa with Trevor Tyshawn, guest hosted by David Bilbrey. What follows is an in-person recording that David made with Trevor, who David met through a local church in Kansas City, Missouri, where Trevor was speaking about his work with Connect Africa Ministries, a faith-based non-governmental organization, doing outreach in Uganda where they're building low-cost bio-sand filters in order to help provide clean drinking water. With that, they're also introducing and sharing the ideas of permaculture, including technologies like rocket stoves and sanitary toilets. Along the way, David and Trevor talk about how this work is being done at very low cost through a series of Connect Africa resource centers that are combining outreach with education in order to empower individuals and transform communities. Enjoy this conversation with David and Trevor, and I'll join you again afterwards. Hi, this is David Bilbrey with Ecothinka.com, and I'm here today with Trevor Tyshawn of Connect Africa Ministries. Uh, welcome, Trevor. Hey, good to be here. Trevor uh, went to Africa 14 years ago to, with a heart to just help people, and about four or five years into that, stumbled into permaculture, and it's changed everything. <laughs> oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> so, you knew, right? <laughs> yeah. So, Trevor, tell us about your, uh, your come-to-Jesus moment with uh, coming to permaculture. Well, we were working in northern Uganda in refugee camps, IDP camps, internally displaced person camps. And uh, you would see these people that had been living for 25 years just on food handouts, World Food Program aid. But they, they weren't given enough to completely live, so they were given about uh, 75% of what they needed. And all that World Food Program food and, and the, you know, the devastation that happened around that, those programs, international programs, deforestation around these camps, you can still see it from Google Earth and... and uh, these giant rings of, they've cut everything down for firewood and they've lost the ability to grow and harvest. And so we got some, uh, some land out near Kampala and I hired one of the top guys graduated from an agriculture university and thought, well, here's, he's got training, he'll know how to do things. And we poured money into uh, the land, uh, you know, here comes the tractor, and we plow, and of course the tractor breaks down, and got to get parts, and uh, just one thing on top of the next, and and uh, you know all the promise of oh this is, we're going to be so fertile and it's going to grow, and 
season by season. We're pumping money into this, and the harvest fails for uh, the soil is not fertile enough. The crops weren't the right. We need more pesticides. We need more, you know, and and, uh, you just realize whatever they taught this manager in school doesn't work in Africa. And after a few rainy seasons, probably a year and a half, two years, we just said, stop. We're, we're doing the wrong way. And there just seems to be a lot of doing it the wrong way in Africa. And, and uh, so we, we stopped and uh, let it sit for uh, a rain, you know, six months and just uh, leaned back and said, okay, well, well what, how, how do we do it? And we had a, a friend here in America, his name was Grant Shabin. Uh, and he had begun a journey on permaculture, and he was telling me stories of, hey, hey the land can produce itself. And uh, so he came over to visit us, and we tried, just dug a few zyped holes, made a couple mulch piles, uh, tried a few things, and oh my gosh, it worked! You know, <laughs> the, it held water, and things started to grow. And then we dug berms in the land, and and oh my gosh, the water table came up and now we had a swamp. So we dug it out and made it into a fish farm and just season by season, we've tried little things and observed how the land is and where the water flows and just simple things. Uh, Began to institute, don't burn. Like in Africa, they love the burning season. So when it becomes dry, you can actually see this from a satellite map all of Africa is covered by a cloud and it's smoke because they burn everything off. All they know is slash and burn. And they're burning the nutrients off the land. They're build, burning off the compost. And uh, so we learn things like don't burn anymore. Compost everything. Let, it, uh, let nature have its way. And you don't have to make hard compost piles. Just pile it up, you know. Pile it in a in a berm and let it hold water. So it's those kind of ideals. We we uh, I know permaculture can be very technical and there's all these thoughts around it, but it can also be very very simple and it can change people's lives on the ground. It's so it's so encouraging. So um, you you got there, you um, started to just observe and see what was going on and what the problems were. Is that how that worked initially? Well, I, we were working in these refugee camps, uh, IDP camps, and uh, one day we got uh, someone put an untreated bottle of water, a jerry can of water, into our juice jug. And within three days, 40, uh, 75 to 80% of our team was down. I was down for four months. I had four different parasites. <laughs> and so it took month by month dealing with the next one and the next one. And... Uh, so we realized how sick people, this, this is, was killing people, and it wasn't until it was personalized to me and I was that sick mm. that it really motivated us. There's got to be solutions to problems like that. And so uh, in our organization, we're not doing just agriculture. It's, it's a holistic thing. It's, if there isn't clean water to drink and if people's lives can't, if they're sick all the time, they can't prosper. They can't get ahead. So it involves clean water. It involves having enough water. It involves banking that water and building uh, cisterns to hold that water. It involves building technologies of 
here's how you build so the termites don't come and just eat everything. And here's how to make, so we don't have to, to build these giant brick kilns and burn tons upon tons of firewood. Here's how you make bricks that are compressed earth bricks. Uh, so we've been on this journey of finding, uh, here's the next problem, and we go on a journey, there's got to be a solution. Uh, we're steering it all towards nothing's imported. Because once you start importing, the VAT tax, uh, the import fees, it just gets so far to reach. So everything has to be locally made. Use what's locally available. And uh, there are solutions. You can solve the problems locally in every community. We don't need to bring solutions from China or the West. We can solve it with our own hands. And that's the heart of what we do in Connect Africa, connecting these technologies to people. So the first technology was water purification? Yeah, there's a great technology called a biosand water filter. And they found oh, 150 years ago that uh, if you take very fine sand and uh, diffuse water through it, don't dump just a bucket of water through the sand, but let it trickle through it. And there's, you know, there's water over top of the sand at all times. There's a, some kind of living layer grows in the filter. It grows between each grain of sand. And that's a bio layer. It's microscopic. So just sand will clean the water if it's done the right way. How long does it take for that bio thing to grow in the sand? Usually we tell people, give it three or four days of getting your filter started. Uh, put in a jerry can a day, so a jerry can is five gallons or 20 liters of water, and add a jerry can or two jerry cans a day of water. And then within about five days, this layer is starting to establish. They'll, because they're drinking such uh, uh, water that's got so much stuff in it, the turbidity of the water is high, they'll see an immediate resolve that the water is quite drinkable from the start. But we encourage them to let this layer grow. And then we test the water. So we do E. coli testing of, this is the marker uh, bacteria. And we teach also on, we have water labs. We teach villagers, hey, this is how, this is what's making you sick. And here's how we can test for it. And so we're dealing with uh, belief systems like it's not witchcraft. You know, there everything ends up into the, the witch doctor is going to solve things. And it's like, no, it's not. It's not witchcraft that makes you sick. It's your fecal matter, right? It's, it's <laughs> us that makes us sick. Uh, it's sanitation, hygiene, and we can introduce them to the science behind it. Here, let's grow some bacteria samples and show you where our sickness comes from. Let's uh, take swabs off your hand and show you why you should be washing your hands after you go to the bathroom. And uh, that very basic type knowledge starts to, to change belief systems. And once they realize, now we can change our own. Once they're empowered in their mind, yeah, they realize we can change this. It's simple. A little soap and water, uh, sanit hand washing, sanitation issues. We can solve problems. So that knowledge about how to have clean water and, and these sanitation issues opens their minds to bigger possibilities, which leads to what's the next step after that? So we don't come into any community. And Connect Africa now, we're currently in, uh, we have eight centers. We're in three or four nations. So it's organic growth, but we don't come in and tell people, this is how you solve these problems. We uh, start with that kind of permaculture principle of let's observe. Let's get people doing a survey. And so we, as a groups called us in to join with them, we, we pull together whichever leaders we can find. Uh, we're not based out of one church structure. 
but uh, we'll find pastors, leaders, um, we'll pull them together to say, first off, we need to connect together and find people of a heart that, that they're in unity, they want to see transformation, they want stuff to change. And then we ask them, here, do a survey, ask people what their problems are. Let's find out. We don't know you, you're the ones who live in this community. And so uh, they'll do a survey and they'll come back with their top five, top seven. I can, you know, they're all pretty much the same, so you know they're going to find the same problems, but uh, they have to go on that journey of discovery. And then with this group of people, we'll say, well, what do you want to solve first? What's your top one? And clean water is almost always going to start at the top. And this filter just works. It's so bulletproof. They have to make it themselves. They have to do all the work and learn all the knowledge behind it and run a program. We do get some sponsors from the West, uh, well-wishers, friends of ours that will sponsor some some uh, filters, give us some bags of cement and uh, need a little money in there to grease the wheel. But uh, these are the people that locally solve their own problem. And on the aftermath of a program, it's you're talking six months, a, a year, they've been visiting their filters. They, they're starting to change the hygiene in the village. But this thing happens, unity, empowerment. These leaders decide, man, we can solve the next problem. And they go back to their, uh, their list of uh, survey and they say, yeah, you know, we're having agriculture issues, poverty issues. Our land doesn't produce. And they say, buy us fertilizer. And we're like, no, let's grow it. Let's show you how to bring your land back to life. And so that once people are empowered, they, they naturally want to go and solve the next thing. And then we can change this change that and so then we have all these ideas they come to one of our centers and they see 20 different technologies they they learn about echo sand toilets composting toilets they learn about new type of building technology uh, ISSB interlocking stabilized soil blocks where you don't have to burn down forests to, to burn bricks you can make bricks that are just compressed they learn about all the growing technologies so they learn you know, in our land at our main center called the Hub is, is really lousy. I mean, we have 20 acres of rocky soils and, and swamp. And, but uh, they come and see how bad our soil is and what we're growing. And they say, we could, our soil is so much better than what you have. And look at what you've done. So sometimes maybe you can start with something that's bad, but if you if you change it, it'll inspire people. If you did, if you could do that with that soil, look at what we could do with ours. And our soil's so good, and we do nothing with it. So people will tour our hub; they'll get to see all these things in operation: pig tractors, chicken quadrant system, fish farms, apiary training. We've got all this stuff simultaneously happening. Different agroforestry areas, and uh, we do shade grow and coffee. And we're always after the next. Uh, you know, what, what, what can solve this problem? How can we put more money in people's pockets? How can we inspire people to, to use what they have, use their land and grow? Uh, how much does it cost to put one of these water filters together? You know, our program, we run a program cost. Uh, the, the, the actual cost of the filters, 30 or $40 by the time it's done. But to run the program and bring the community along, usually it's about $100 because it's going to be a six or eight month program. And so there needs to be a little money in there to grease the wheel. But once it's greased, this, this energy happens. And so um, 
uh, you know, we work with pastors and it's oftentimes these guys are just focused on their little mud church and, you know, they're praying so hard and trying so hard, but it's abject poverty. And, and we shift guys' mindsets from just trying to build their little thing to shifting that, hey, maybe your whole community is your church. And maybe if you start loving these people and changing them, uh, and so we've seen these pastors that'll, uh, you know, struggle along with 30 people for years. And after one, one year of doing filters, now they're visiting people's houses. No, no longer is he sitting in some dirt little church. Now he's out in his community. And their church is expanding and growing. They've tripled. We got one guy went to 100 in one year, you know, and he, now he's got other problems. They've got to meet under a tree because he can't get everybody in his building. But it's, you know, clean water. And people said, this man loves us. And our children don't get sick. And so it really works. Hmm. And, and one filter, it's a household filter. But oftentimes you've got four or five families drinking from one. So our, some of our numbers are 25, 30 people off of one filter. It just works. <laughs> so your initial cost of going in and, and teaching the system over how many months, you say? Usually it'll be about a six-month process because they have to build them themselves. So you're, so you're teaching. It's a teaching system. So once you've taught that, then they go and just build filters for all of their, peop- their neighbors and it just expands out into the countryside? I mean, is it, is it kind of ex- ex- spread like a virus? Well, we, uh, uh, so we have these centers. We call them CARC centers, Connect Africa Resource Center, C-A-R-C. And out of that, it's a technology center. It's a, it's a meeting place that's neutral, so we're not linked with one church. So everyone gets to play, right? <laughs> Every group, Muslim, animist, whatever, <laughs> it's neutral. And it's a neutral ground where people can come from all different tribes. And they get to see this stuff in activity. And as we recognize uh, and we invite people to different conferences, and as you recognize, hey, this community really wants this, we're not coming in trying to force people. In some places, it's a lot slower. But we let it grow organically. It's like this tendril goes out mm-hmm. 20 miles in one direction, and these leaders say, we need this. We saw what you did. And, and so out of our Kark Center, they'll go, and it's local. It's, they're of the same tribe or of the same language. And... They run a start with a filter project, and then they say, we need bricks, we need to build. Teach us how to build rainwater tanks, and we'll be able to partner that in. And then this energy happens. Uh, These groups link together. They have a small subgroup, you know, and uh, it's not money out of our pocket. We're not funding all this. It's uh, small funding just does the the technologies, but then, then this organic empowerment of individuals takes place. And it's wonderful. That's amazing. So you started with one um, center. Uh, tell me about the progression, how it's grown into eight. Well, <laughs> we kind of ended up doing it backwards in that instead of building a main base first, we were working in these refugee camps. And uh, we ended up saying it's now, as, as, as the shooting stopped and unity had come in these camps, we need to build a center in one of these camps. And so that was our very first Kark Center. Put a few bricks together, slap a roof on it, uh, a conference center, a training center, and let them get started making filters. And then it started growing. And the next center ended up way up in Atiak on the Sudan border. 
And then the next center started up in Chigumba, and this thing just picked up energy and steam. And we would start with the, the lease, you know, we'd barely get a lease on some land, and we'd get our brick machine out there and start making a few bricks. Someone would come along with a few bags of cement. We never, ever had the money to build a center. It was always, let's just start, and we'll make a few bricks. And, uh, and so this thing grew up from uh, just very small beginnings. And then finally, afterward, uh, after we had three active centers or four active centers, we got a, a donation that enabled us to get a 20-acre base called the Hub. And that's where now it's, you know, we really needed a, a place that we could land everything. I was running a, a small house in Kampala, and uh, we had a truck, uh, we have a 30-passenger bus, a land cruiser, you know, we would have tents permanently on the lawn, right, <laughs> to hold all the gear because uh, we had done all these events for, you know, reconciliation events and training events and everything was done out of tents. And uh, so finally to have a roof over your heads and again, it just came with put a few bricks up and get started. And uh, so it's been really amazing. Of uh, We really believe in small beginnings. Just start. Just do. And... It's amazing what it's grown into. And so center by center now, it's, uh, we, we, uh, our Kenyan centers, we were having some uh, immigration issues in Uganda, the shenanigans, our paperwork got pulled, so we were getting kicked out of the country. And uh, as we crossed the border with tears in our eyes into Kenya, wondering if we we're going to lose it all, there was our Kenyan friends there who'd been out to our centers and been trained. And they were there to meet us at the border and said, no, 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 come with us. And then we go to this plot of land and there's their elders sitting around. And uh, again, we still have tears in our eyes of getting kicked out of one thing. And they're there saying, here, we're here to give you this land for a center. And uh, here's the elders and we're signing these papers. And so we weren't kicked out of a country, we were kicked into another country. And, uh, you know, sometimes if, if, uh, if, if uh, the plan is to expand and God's saying you're going to expand, he will get you to st step out by faith. And that happened to us. And, and it keeps happening. Uh, we're now into Congo. And again, we, uh, our Congo story is amazing. We, we did a, a filter project through uh, some water organization. Uh, across the border in Congo and, and we connected whenever we do filters we also run pastors conference and connected with these leaders and about uh, six months later we start getting all these calls in Uganda from these people who are our friends we've been back and followed up on the filters and we know these leaders now and and they're calling to say that uh, could we take their sons and daughters the the Great Lakes war had fired up the rebels had moved into Goma uh, they're raping all the women, and and they're the slaughters on for young men, and and these pastors are saying, please, could you take our college age children? Could you take our our daughters? And so we're not a refugee organization, but what could you say? It, it was right around Christmas time. I was like, well, come to the hub, you know, come to our base. Well, so we started off with the first dozen, and then another dozen came, and we were able to 
kind of squeeze them through the rules of Uganda that they're here for three months of training. And we started introducing them to all these technologies, of course, starting with water and um, moving through permaculture design, moving through building technologies and borehole repairs, all the things that we do. And uh, after about three months, the UN had stepped into Goma and the shooting had stopped and it became safe enough to send these students back. And, uh, you know, it was a big outlay of our money. We do everything by faith. How do you feed, you know, dozens of people for, for months? How do you provide for everything? But you just start with small and it just grows. And someone comes along and puts a few dollars in your pocket and someone else. And it just kind of grows. And that happened to us. So there was this big outlay of money and you were exhausted at the end of uh, these refugees. I remember the day they landed it was the it was the day before Christmas, and we had just released our whole staff to go home to their families. And here's my first group of refugees, and these poor people are wandering in. Uh, they've been traveling for days to get there. They've been abused at the border, and um, they're sick, and and they rashes and fevers. And but as they get to our house, get into the compound at the hub, they just fell on their knees and they began to worship God. They began to just sing songs of thanks and uh, they don't speak great English. We were having a translator, you know, I was trying to rehearse my French because they, they were trying to find a common language, Swahili, and, uh, but they just began to worship. And, and, you know, people have been that abused and it, it just, it was one of our best Christmases, you know, of... Uh, <laughs> I had. I remember the next day I had to go and I bought like a, a quarter of a cow and I cooked it and they ate it all, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm lugging home like 100 pounds of beef thinking, oh, this will last for a few days. And no, no, it was eaten in one day. They just tucked into Christmas dinner, you know. So after, after three months with all these refugees, uh, we send them back and we didn't hear much from them. Um. But then they start saying, uh, you know, they send someone over. And, and it turned out it was one of a member of parliament came and toured our center and looked at our uh, um, operating procedures and our, our uh, constitution and, and said, yes, this is the way organizations should be set up. And uh, took we gave them a copy and said, yeah, well, you know, if you guys want to start uh, here, we, everything we have is open source. So we, we gave them these documents and they translated them all into French. And uh, they come back and, and they've brought that they're a legal organization, Connect Africa Congo, uh, Connect Africa Goma. Somehow they were able to wrestle through acres of paperwork and trouble and bribes and, uh, you know, small amounts of money. I think we chipped in a thousand dollars, but this organization structure was made and they've got members, they've got 40 to 60 different members and they're a filter factory. They're making filters. And our next project with them is to send a brick machine over and get them started in making rainwater tanks. And, uh, but that's how our centers grow. Uh, sometimes it's just open your house, take people in and then watch it expand. And that happens. So that's how our centers are growing right now is, you know, we start with just the little we have, and it grows. So uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about the, the bricks. Can you tell me about that? Bricks in Africa usually are, uh, they make these clay bricks by hand using just wooden little 
things. They let them dry. Then they pile them to, into this huge mound and burn them. They've got to burn it with tons upon tons of firewood. It's got to burn for three or four days. About half the bricks are ruined. They're not any good. So you're only going to get about half out of all this work. And uh, they're all different sizes and shapes. They're very porous. So they just drink water when you build buildings with them. Uh, so the walls get moldy. And uh, it's just, it's better than a mud and wattle building, but not much. And so we started searching for, well, what's the solution? This can't work when you see mass areas of Africa being deforested and you realize people need good houses, but if it costs us the environment, how are we going to move forward? And we found a, a brick a technology called interlocking stabilized soil blocks. And we found a machine that was actually designed by a professor in Africa. So compressed earth blocks have been around for hundreds of years. And all you need is subsoil, uh, substrate, with not too much clay in it so that you can't, you've got to get kind of the right mix of sub-dirt. And then you use some kind of a binding agent and cement is the binding agent. And so one bag of cement, 50 kilos of cement will do about 120 bricks. And they fit like Legos. And, and Professor Masazi of Makari University in Uganda had designed this machine that did the double interlock so they uh, tongue and groove each other on top and bottom and then on each end. And so they stack like Lego. They fit together and lock in place. And uh, the Africans love that it's a, it's a Ugandan design. It's, this is an imported technology from somewhere in the West. This is one of the sons of their soil have solved one of the problems. And we love that as well. And so uh, we train on this technology, showing people your solutions right under your feet, the dirt right under your feet. Uh, you can make good houses. You can make rainwater tanks, echo sand toilets, rocket stoves. This brick becomes the key to so many of the technologies we promote. And uh, it's amazing that you don't have to burn these bricks. And so we test all kinds of different designs. How strong can they be? Uh, a lot of our centers were built in refugee camps. And so there is times of active shooting. When we built uh, a, a some of our centers, we didn't put glass in the windows. It was steel uh, shutters so that if the shooting happens, you can lock the building down and uh, will the building withhold AK fire, you know. Uh, and they hold up so much better than uh, the, the, the other bricks. You can just shoot right through them, the, the burnt bricks. But these ones are dense. Also, they don't absorb water. They'll, they're much more uh, water resilient. You do have to put a small plaster layer on the outside. To, you can't have direct water impingement uh, on them, but so they're very resilient bricks. So it's a great technology. Use what you have. This brick machine is all hand compressed, so it's two or three guys on a machine. This machine will last for hundreds of houses. So how many bricks does it take to create a, a water catchment system? Okay. Um, the rainwater harvesting tanks, it's a, it's a whole new idea that you can collect water off your roof. So in Uganda, we get about five and a half feet of water a year. It's a tremendous amount of rain, but most people are drinking out of a swamp because they don't collect it. And so that it's something for, for them to begin to say, hey, hey, these people have clean water, they have abundant water all the time, and it's free. It comes from the heavens. It's just collecting your rain. And so we uh, 
all we do is teach them to use their metal roofs and uh, build the gutter system and, and then, then focus the gutters into a tank. The sweet spot on our tanks is usually a 15,000 liter. Uh, we'll have to change that into gallons. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, yeah, 15,000, 16,000 liter. You can go larger, but by the time you're going larger, you got to put so much more steel into the tank and that your pressures get higher. So we encourage groups, build two tanks instead of one large tank. Also, if you get one tank that develops a crack, then you've lost all your water. Whereas if you have two tanks and one's gone bad for a little while, you can fix it later, but at least we, you don't lose all your water. So this 15,000 liters, 16,000 liters is the sweet spot. It, we use about 750 bricks. And so we'll arrive three to five days kind of early. We'll run a conference and teach people to learn about the brick technology. They'll make it. There's a, a specialized machine that makes these gently curved bricks. And so there's two different brick machines. One's the straight bricks and one has got this curve to it. And the curved brick uh, is a three meter interior diameter or we can also make smaller tanks of about 8,000 liters with a two meter interior diameter. And uh, then we you pour a good uh, strong foundation. So it's using a local stone, we'll find hardcore stone and put a foundation that's about six or eight inches of, of solid cement that is gonna hold the water pressure. And then these bricks stack up and then there's a, just a concrete layer on the inside. Uh, so it's concreted on the inside and the outside. We put a steel wire mesh around it that is the structural support of it. So the, the, the tank is two meters tall, six feet tall, seven feet tall, and it's got steel in it. And then the taps are put in. And so these tanks will last 25, 30 years. We've seen there's tanks out there that are, it's amazing. They're fixable so that if you do get a tank or a leak, you just kind of come in with a chisel and chisel it out and then put in a new waterproof layer. So if something goes wrong or if it's not done absolutely, you know, some, some, there's a little bit of a crack, it's fixable. Where the cheaper plastic tanks that are being promoted, they only last a couple years. It's easy for someone to come and break it and uh, drive a hole in it. Uh, you know, oftentimes in communities, if, if uh, the, we put these tanks in it, if the community doesn't feel like they're getting water or feel like someone's taking their water, they'll go and break. And so you'll go and find places where the community, maybe the schools took, ran the community off and said, no, this water is just for the students. And so later in the night, someone comes in and destroys whatever's there. Mm. And so it's developing this community consensus is huge. Also, we've seen these big plastic tanks where uh, in the middle of the night they came and and drained it and rolled it away and you come back in the morning and your whole rain system's gone uh, you, who didn't see a, a giant uh, 10 foot tank uh, getting rolled down the hill and loaded on a truck but no one saw it and there goes the water for a school and so uh, the, the great thing is when the local community actually builds their own tanks with their own dirt they learn this new type of technology, so there's a building learning happening, and then they have ownership of, we did this for our people and our students. And uh, so that, yeah, people get clean water, but so much more happened. Uh, local community got empowered. They solved their own problems. It wasn't someone from the outside who made a donation. It was these local people who took part in it as well. 
That's you know, what I'm hearing you say as I'm listening to this is that this is about a lot more than just water. I mean, the design you guys have figured out because you're living, you're using it for your own water. So yeah, you've, yeah. you figured out that human scale, a certain size is best. You get bigger, it gets more complicated and less resilient. Right. Two tanks is better than one because if one breaks, you still got another one. Right. <laughs> and and but But that community buy-in is key. And that's the difference between you know, international large-scale aid and people on the ground that are living with the people and having that involvement because if, well, number one, if you taught them how to build it and someone came and destroyed the whole thing, they could rebuild it the next day also, right? Well, these tanks are really hard to destroy. I think we've only ever one had one time where someone came in and drove a big spike through this tank. But it was easy enough to fix. <laughs> well, um, you know, a bomb or you know, wartime or whatever. Yeah. whatever happens, there's resilience because the people know how to do it. They, yes. they can still do it. So you're building self-sufficiency. You're building community because I'm guessing some of those people in those communities maybe didn't always have good communication with one another. But after going through a project like this over a period of weeks, there might have been some new relationships established as well. Well, we're called Connect Africa. And so we're, we're really focused on connecting these tribal groups uh, most parts, most places in trauma in Africa, whether it's the Rwanda genocide, troubles in Kenya, the Ugandan uh, LRA thing, they have a conflict between these two different uh, types of tribes. It's tribal. And so in Connect Africa, we realize that's kind of the core solution that has to be addressed. And the way you address that is not to go in and and bring up past history of who did what to who and whose grandfather or great-grandfather. But the way is to go in and get them working together. And so we, when we're going to go into a community, it's always about connecting people from these different groups together. Whether it's different churches, different uh, uh, religious beliefs, Muslims, uh, Christians, animists involved. It, putting groups together to solve a problem works on the core issue of connecting human hearts. We're all people. So can you give me some examples of the um, impact and effects of those things happening in certain communities? Yeah. We just recently had an amazing one in March here. Uh, We have a center in Chigumba about halfway up to the Nile River from Kampala, four hours up from where uh, the hub base is. And... You know, there are people in the world that want to go and foment hatred. (laughs) Uh, And so uh, we're finding that there's this Islamic um, Wahhabism that comes out of Saudi Arabia. And uh, they'll go and sponsor different small mosques. And it's always about creating this, you know, enemy that you're against these people. And so this has started to stir up in this area. Outsiders have come in and stirred up hatred. And so uh, our local center there, Chigumba Center, is headed by these pastors and leaders, and they've got ownership in their community. And, and they're like, no, we're not going to let outsiders into our place and muddy the water. And so as we had a, uh, a group that was donating a rain tank, they said, you know, as a group, they talked it out and said, we want to put this tank at a mosque because we want to show these Muslim people that we love them. And we're for them, and they're part of our community. They're part of us. 
And so they did that, that these uh, Christian leaders and pastors are there working alongside the Muslims, making the bricks and teaching them how to do it. And then this tank goes up and we had some uh, Mzungus, white people in, and we're at a mosque putting uh, some of the plaster on this tank. It was just a great example of this connect. All this was going to solve this problem. And this was the local solution, they said. We're going to solve our own problems. And that's happened over and over. Uh, in our Atiak Center, we've, uh, which is way up on the Sudan-Congo uh, Sudan border, the last town before you get into South Sudan, uh, we had a hundred filters going in, uh, a sponsoring organization to come along. And so they decided, no, every group in this community gets to take part, every church. And that can take months for a group to come to consensus because it's fine if they're all linked together or they all believe the same thing. But when you add a new group, oh, the Catholics get to be, well, we don't believe like they do. And, <laughs> but, but they're part of the community. And then, oh, the Muslims need to have be a part of making these filters. No, you know, <laughs> or this other tribe that's represented there. They're outsiders. And so it, it took months of building consensus to say everybody's kids are getting sick. That means that every group gets to take part. And they had to make those filters. It's a months-long process. It's hard work banging the, the filter molds and, and you know, letting the filters dry, sifting the sand. It's, it's hard work. But these guys work together for a period of months and then the installs happen and people got clean water. And on the aftermath of that, they're still meeting as a group. <laughs> they, they want to change something. They're friends now, right? So this uh, informal group still meets on a monthly basis. They solve community problems together. Because no longer is that, that other group the enemy, right? They've worked together. They're friends. They're in it together. And that's the heart of Connect. It's this connecting hearts. So by teaching people to make their own water filters, it's turning into self-governance. Yes. Yeah, and it's empowering people. So our motto in Connect Africa is empowered individuals transforming communities. And so we look at it only takes one guy in that community. We don't need to have a huge group, but we find these people who will get this. And then we empower them with technology ideas. But it's also a mindset change of, uh, that you can work together. We like putting people from the West in the mix. They need to meet Americans and Swedish people and English people. And we love putting people from all over Africa. So they meet Zambians and Congolese and Kenyans and Sudanese and that it shifts their mindset from just their tribe, just their local problem. And there's something about connecting this world together if we're, if we're humble and do it the right way. It expands their knowledge like we can rise to be this. And they get empowered, right? <laughs> And then it's wonderful. It's once they get empowered and they see they can change something, they'll start to fight corruption at that grassroots level. Uh, and corruption systemic. It's the cancer that rots out Africa and these countries. And the answer is grassroots. The answer is, is local people taking ownership and fighting down corruption at the next level. And they can all go en masse. Now, instead of one guy going to fight uh, or going to challenge something, there's 50 people behind him saying, we won't stand for this, and we vote. 
and you watch these leaders start to change. So um, what's an example of how that corruption was stopped by this unity? Well, again, in March, I, I give you like every month, right? <laughs> we'll just go back to my last one. Uh, I, I came home from Uganda in March. So we're fixing boreholes out in a district up uh, on the Congo border. It's the Hoima district. And we don't drill wells because we found there's so many broken holes, right? They just need a little bit of maintenance. A couple rubber washers go, and then the there's a $10,000 borehole that doesn't work anymore. No one taught them to maintain what was put in, what was mm. donated. And so we've gone on this, this you know, uh, we're bringing up all new pipes to put in and we pull the whole old pump up and replace it all with new pieces. But we're also retraining the district uh, people who should be doing this. We've gone through over months and months of... of uh, slow process of dealing with the corrupt water officer guy who was trying to block anything unless he got money in his pocket. And uh, and it was this group of empowered and their pastors and leaders that working together. And so it's taken months for this to get this far. And so uh, this was a deep hole area. Some of the holes were uh, 40 pipes deep. Uh, turns out almost all the boreholes in this whole area were broken. So people were having to walk for miles and miles to the one or two pumps that were still working and, and they would dry up desperate water problems. Uh, as we start fixing these as a group and we had some uh, Americans in to help and they'd help sponsor some of the, the steel going in the holes. Um, and then we've got, we're working with local district people. There's people from Connect Africa from our centers there. And we brought another organization in as well because we always connect. We never work alone. We're always working with as many people as we can. Uh, here comes one of these local demigod guys and he's there to block it and says, I haven't signed off on this and I'm stopping you. And, um, and this will happen. Guys will say, if I don't get my cut, if you don't pay this amount of money, if money doesn't show up in my pocket, nothing's going to happen. It doesn't matter how desperate the people are. Uh, but in this case, uh, we'd already gone way above him at different, at different levels. The, the community was on board. We'd done all the legwork. And so uh, we have the community standing there, and here comes the guy who's his boss and says, no and breaks this power, you know, this stoppage. And the well got fixed, and the you got everyone dancing, and, you know. <laughs> we're trying to pump these wells out. To, you got to pump them for a while to get any chlorine out of them, and we want to test them. And, but people were so desperate. There's hundreds of jerry cans lined up, and just this mob of people, and they wouldn't waste one drop of water, right, <laughs> because they're so desperate for us. So in this one case, we were saying, you know, conservatives were kind of saying, oh, maybe 5,000 people, 5,000 people are going to get clean water. But at the end of this, uh, at the end of fixing these, I think it turned out to be 16 holes, the number was well over 50,000 people drinking from them. Mm. And it staggered us, just the number of people. And that can happen in Africa. You say... You know, can one intervention shift things? Yes. It, it 
just broke the, the water problems in that community. And now the local pump mechanics are trained. They have spare parts. They've got, uh, they're connected to one of our resource centers so that if they get any troubles, they make a phone call and we're able to go and help sort things and redo a training or find a special party needs. We gave them tools so that they actually have the tools to do the work. That community, their whole budget for that whole region, they were going to try to fix two wells that year. And in one, you know, this is where our Western partnership, we can come in and in, in one swoop, we 16 wells were fixed. That's amazing. So what was the budget they had to fix two wells and how much did it cost you to fix 16? Well, initially the group that was funding was going to only, they were coming in to drill two wells. And, you know, we, we tell them, hey, for pennies on the dollar, like if we can tell you not to drill another well next to the broken one, <laughs> let's shift your mind. Let's shift it into fixing. So for 10 cents on the dollar, we can fix wells. So instead of drilling two wells, they fixed 16. So the same. Wow, that's, that's so good. That's amazing. And then trained all these people and community filters went in. It, every time we come in, we come in with all that we carry. So what other effects is this having on these communities as far as um, education and any of those type of things? Um, you know, edu- sometimes the education in Africa is very root and memory. Uh, just you memorize this kind of root learning. Uh, we try to practicalize it. So even if we're going to put in filters into a school, the students learn what causes uh, people to get sick, where it is waterborne illness. They learn about hygiene. They learn to wash their hands. So anytime we're, we're doing a project, whatever the project is, we incorporate as many schools as we can. We practicalize the learning. They learn to make filters. Uh, they, you know, so they're not just getting, they got clean water, but no, they learned and they took part in it and they made bricks. And as well, then we've got our, some of our leaders that, Kark Center leaders have become politicians. And it, they're a pastor. They, that's not their focus, but they got shanghaied, right? They got grabbed by the community and said, no, we're electing you. You're the leader who brought us clean water. You shifted things. And these guys are independents or whatever, and some of them have risen to great power. And it can be really, uh, they're breaking some of the rules because you're supposed to have a certain level of education. And these guys, they don't have the education, but they do the work. And uh, the work speaks for itself that they're changing communities. And so they've got to, they've made new rules that you guys, if, if, you've, if you've got this body of work, we'll accept you. You don't need to be a college degree. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we have our different leaders rising in, in community. What's the difference between those leaders that were appointed by the people, if you will, versus the more typical leaders in those areas? Well, the, so they've got a political structure, and, and I'm speaking from Kenya, Uganda, so that each structure is slightly different. There's, we work in many, many countries. Uh, so there's a, nuances, but it's, there's similarities that uh, are pretty typical for each country you'll have these local levels of government that you need to get their signatures. But this guy's not really paid. So after he spends a bunch of money to win the election, if you want him to sign anything, he's going to want $100 for his signature. And you can't go ahead unless he signs. And and when you've got to go through this, I need to get 10 different people to sign at 10 different levels. 
and some guys are five dollars for their signature, and other guys are want two hundred dollars. I mean, it's this crazy system, and these are the elected people that are look at you and say, "Hey, you've got money, and I'm going to try to get it. You're going to get money into my pocket." And so that's got to be broken, and no one likes it. And you know, everyone knows the power of corruption, but. Uh, as soon as they have a chance to get their little piece, a lot of people, they, they go to that. And that's really sad. So these, these so our yeah. leaders of integrity are rising up and breaking that system. So they don't do that. So they that, don't. <laughs> that, that corruption is ended when you have these guys rise up that came from solving real problems. And then, they're because they're now part of the system, they can face these guys down and say, this system has to change. From the inside, they're saying that. And it starts to change. It does start. Mm. No one, you know, corruption doesn't like being brought into the light. Nobody wants to know that your hand's out. And so by having righteous leaders, real servant leaders, leading and actually doing something, uh, it starts to change the system. That's amazing. Water, clean water. We started with water filters. (laughs) And you've got government corruption being routed. It's grassroots. You know, this empowerment model of empowering people. You can change, you can start with one thing and it can lead to the next and the next. And it can change things. Empowered individuals. You know, and oftentimes people, they come up with this blanket, oh, the government controls everything, there's nothing I can do. Uh, We're in such poverty, but, you know, poverty is a mindset. and, And you don't, you can pool resources together, you can start to make change. And then that'll, you'll build off that and it'll go to the next level, go to the next level. And, whole, and they, these centers just take on life of their own, you know? It's, it's amazing. And again, we're doing those absolutely tiny funding, right? Uh, we live in Africa. We've been there how many years? We didn't have an organization behind us. So there was negative behind it because, gosh, I, other people have all, you know, they have money and a budget. and We're out there by faith. But we had to learn to use what we had. We had to do so much with so little. And so the hard years were so valuable for us because we had to do with little. We had to live like the Africans live. Now, I want to talk a little bit about money. Um, so you went to Africa supporting yourself. The typical model for Christian missionaries is to raise support, tell everyone what they're going to do and wherever they're going, and then have monthly supporters give them money. You decided to raise your own money and go. Well, first of all, why did you not do it the traditional way? And then second of all, tell us what you did do and how that worked out. Yeah, Connect Africa came from a dream. I was visiting several projects. Uh, I was linked to people who did have money and gave money around the world, but no one had ever gone to follow up the money. And so mm-hmm. I said, well, let me go and I'll go and look. So I went to Bosnia to see one project and went uh, somewhere else. And then I was flew into Uganda. And as I get to Uganda a couple days, um, it's my very first time in, I have a dream for three nights in a row. And uh, I'm I'm up all night long. It's an exhausting dream because you're building all night long. And and it was basically I dreamt what Connect Africa is. Uh, I didn't come up with it in my mind. I was seeing these communities from the grass roots. The water was becoming clean. The land was coming back to the life. Desert was, new buildings were coming up. Joy was returning among people. And and I'm working alongside them all night long. And then the next night, the dream picks right up from there. And I dream 
it's regional, it spreads, it's growing organically and shoots of it are going out and the same thing happens in the next community, goes to the next country. And uh, it's just amazing. You wake up in the morning like this, ah, could this ever happen? You know, and then last night a dream, it had spread all over Africa. It was in 50 countries. Mm. And so we're currently on night two of the dream, right? It's happened. It's become regional. It's and all with small money. How did this happen? You know, and I think um, my wife and I both had good jobs. We we're in the Bay Area, you know, uh, California, and it was the bubble. There's all kinds of money. We both were doing well, uh, but we just were dissatisfied with that life, and and we just felt kind of like, man, um, we could give back a year. You know, we could give back for a little bit. And uh, so we, I come home with this dream and my wife says, yeah, we could we could give a year. Um, and so Connect Arago, we've been there 14 years now. And of course, our money ran out quite quickly. But uh, we just found that, you know, so many people look to other people to solve the problems or we look to having a big budget will determine what we can believe for. And we just got started believing and, and somehow partners find us, you know? So um, I want to get a couple things in the timeline. So you had these dreams while still in California. Yes. So and, was, then, and you didn't even know what permaculture was. I had no idea. So you, so you got some money, you go to, go to Uganda, you run out of money pretty quick. So then what happens? How do you stay there? Well, we began to, so as we get to Uganda, and we had no idea. I mean, we did everything the exact wrong way, right? We're those people. <laughs> Going with a dream. Yeah, that's us. Uh, we get to a country, and the country's terrifically divided. So in half the country, it's an absolute revival. God's changing them. There's prosperity. Churches are exploding. You know, it's amazing what's happened. And, and it did. It was, they went from... Uh, you know, being considered an Islamic nation to being 75% Christian in one generation. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of churches and amazing transformation. But then the exact opposite is happening in the other part of the country. So half the country is in, in sunshine and half is in absolute darkness. Here's this witch doctor guy that's abusing people, abducting children, 50,000 kids abducted and warped into child soldiers, uh, abducting all these girls. You know, girls are just used as wives. This guy's got 50 wives, 71. They're just used as sex slaves. They're uh, cutting people's lips off, their breasts off, massacres. And here I am, we land in Uganda. We're idol idealistic and I'm standing there. If I look in the south, it's amazing. But if I look in the north, it's hell. And I'm talking to these Christian leaders saying, guys, look, I don't care how good you tell me it is. You never look in that direction. And they're your people. They're Ugandans. And you won't turn around and look. You'll only claim how much God's blessing you. And they were being blessed. And so we would kind of do favors for guys, get in people's faces, Tell them, you got to come with me. We're going north. And the northern people hated the southern people. And so the southern people were saying, they, they're getting what they deserve. Yeah, let them get raped. Let them get abused. Let them get slaughtered. They did it to us. And these deep hatreds. We had no concept of just how deep this stuff is. And so um, 
that's how Connect Africa started. We started connecting these people groups. And we would go up to these refugee camps and we would do these reconciliation events and something would break. We'd realize as we got around the aid industry, you'd get to this group, would have all their branding, UNICEF or whatever, and everything, all the tarps have their name on it, all the jugs have their name on it. There's this branding of suffering. And, and we were like, man, we're never doing that, man. <laughs> you know, we're never going to just stick our name on and give out T-shirts so that, that you can get pictures of us in, in the third world. We just decided that's not the way. And groups would fight amongst each other. You know, that's our camp. No, you got to go to somewhere else because we've already branded it. And then they just give out handouts, but it didn't change anything. And so we, we just kind of realized that the grassroots has to change it. You can't brand people. It's wrong. You know, <laughs> we're a branding country. Everything's an enterprise, right? Everything's marketing. And people are, are real. It's relational. And we've got to be honoring to one another. And, 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 and it honors them when they solve their own people, when they, we come alongside as servants and serve. So you've been there for 14 years. You don't send out support letters. You ran out of money. So how did what, what happened with your money? Well, you know, we get some friends who, you know, some people get inspired. Like they want to actually do something in the world. And uh, people meet us, shake our hand and say, are you guys real? Is this real? And we say, hey, come on out. Come, come on safari. Come visit us. We have some other groups that raise money. That's all they do here is they raise money. Thirst Relief International is one of our partners. There's people that want to change the world. and They're fundraisers. And they look for people like us. They want it, you know, They want bang for their buck. And when they find out, man, we can send money for filters over to, you know, to connect Africa. And they're going to do a good job. They're going to be accountable. It's going to get done right. Mm. Uh, currently, right now, we have a whole bunch of groups that do orphanages and schools and things that we don't think are particularly sustainable. But they all need clean water. And so they find us to say, hey, guys, can you show us how to solve the water problem? Our kids are getting sick. Our medicine bill is 20% of our budget. And we're like, well, we could solve that. And then we teach them. They're sitting on acres of land. We teach them you could use those that land to grow. So you don't have they could, the kids can provide some of their own food. You can be sustainable. And so we have multiple organizations come to us to learn how do you do this? And we run trainings. So... Uh, uh, they come to our conferences, we consult, we come alongside them and get their system going. We start filter factories all over East Africa that for different organizations, they'll come and learn from us and we say, hey, we'll help you get started. So we're open source. We want, we want it's going to take a whole bunch of organizations to, to shift in this direction to really solve the problems. They're huge. Mm. But together we can do it. And so that's been the way forward for us. We've learned also we can live on just a little bit. And so you, what you think you need to make, it's different in Africa. We can live on, you know, we live on less than $1,000 a month. So we don't need to raise very much money. Mm. And we've learned we can have a good life at, at a very little bit of money. And so that's been our, it's harder when you come back to this world and you're back in the world of, uh, we're back in America here and uh, it's, it's harder. It's a harder. lot to <laughs> So uh, we haven't talked about Agriculture, permaculture, food forest type stuff. So tell uh-huh. me what that's been like. So uh, on our rocky 20 acres of land, uh, we, uh, as we were doing things the wrong way, 
uh, we began to learn to do things the right way. And the soils had been really depleted. I mean, terribly depleted. Uh, so crops that they had tried to plant just didn't take. And, and um, so we learned about mulching. We learned about putting in some trees. Uh, they deforested everything. Any tree that was still standing, the you know, as our leaders would come in, they'd be looking at that tree thinking, how many bags of char charcoal could I get if I chopped that? One of the last remaining trees down, you know. And so we began to, to learn about doing food for us, you know, growing enough on your land. So we grow jackfruit, mangoes, uh, we've got papayas on the land. Uh, gosh, I wish I had my list in front of me, but I can see the pictures in my mind, right? Uh, um, but we'll also then add a softwood species so they can grow enough firewood. That's what they use there. And... Uh, so that it can be sustainable. And then we add hardwood species in, in the midst of them so that there's long-term value crops that can be harvested in, in generations coming. So teak, mahogany, hardwood species for, for, fire, uh, for furniture and uh, uh, those sort of things. And so we've got several acres of our land that's been reforested and uh, people come and learn how to do this and they help us as we're putting in more berms on the hills and uh, uh, they get to see they could do this themselves. Build a watershed so that the trees are holding that water and then the, the land that's going to be growing land is watered year-round. Is, is this aspect of it spreading as fast as the clean water aspect? Usually we start with clean water, but they these schools, orphanages, all these kind of projects, all, oftentimes they're sitting on lots of land that no one's doing anything with. And so when they come and learn that they, hey, get started, plant trees, you know, get a windbreak going, um, they, they get inspired, you can do this. We even send them home with seedlings, right? <laughs> like, it isn't just about, here, let's, we'll teach you. No, no, no. We'll load your car up or your, your bags up with seedlings, plant, get started. And it's priming that pump of we're with you. And also it's this, the fact that we're local and the centers are very local in their communities. They can come back and come back. There's a place they can get support. And we, need, we all need support. Well, I would imagine as they start to see trees grow, I mean, that's infectious. Oh, yeah. And so they get going a little bit. You're, you're, you're infecting them with this idea, and they don't know how much they're going to love it. So they start to love it, so they come back to you for more information, more seedlings. And it just grows in that way, too, I would imagine. Is that... Yeah. And we, again, we're Connect Africa, so we're trying to connect with different groups. We found a group that's dealing with the... Uh, there's different diseases among uh, food-bearing crops right now. So there's the banana rot disease, and it's causing them to lose 80% of their banana harvest. And that's their main cash crop. That's what they eat. And so we've partnered with a group, AGT Technologies, and of people doing tissue culture bananas. And so we, we find, you know, we find the problems and then we go after partners and solutions. Does anyone have any ideas? So we don't try to work in a vacuum. And, and then we grow them and show people, here's the solution. Here's how you deal with the disease in your, your crop. And we test five or six different test groups of bananas growing in our land and which ones grow best in the soil. And so we're very experimental of pulling together solutions, and we don't have the, all the ideas, all the solutions. We, we try different things, find things that are happening in China or in Malaysia, and, and try this in our fish farming. And uh, 
uh, and we get to see what we Africa tested. Does it work in the village? Mm-hmm. And then will it work in dry, because we have multiple centers now, does it work in the dry areas up on the Sudan border or out in uh, the desert in Kenya? Uh, we do dry land farming, and uh, these ideas really do work, though. So what was the solution for the banana rot? Uh, so what we found is that uh, Uganda's a, a banana economy, right? Uh, especially that Buganda area where our hub is. Uh, their main food is this type of bananas called uh, matoke. And they eat vast quantities of it. But this disease was taking out 80% of the harvest and was leaving us starvation in areas. And it's a fungal disease. And so uh, the way it spreads is one farmer would give his neighbor some uh, a, a daughter shoot of a banana plant. And he'd plant it in his field, but he's just brought the infection, the fungal infection. And it would spread plant to plant until it took over his whole area. The answer is to go and dig all of that out so they've got to remove all the infected bananas, kill all the bananas on their land, leave the holes open. We, we then teach them uh, to dig zypets, proper big one meter by one meter zypets, and to mulch all that. And, and as the land is the naturally cleansing of the disease, the fungal infection dies. And then you bring in a pure species that doesn't have the disease. Uh, they are trying, you know, there's some GMO bananas they're trying to test. We're kind of steered away from that and said, let's just go back to a more uh, original species that can, uh, it'll still catch the disease, but if they learn how not to, inter, you know, not to spread it, they can actually get their bananas back in business. And then we'll add different crops into it. So a mixture of crops in the midst of the bananas, so adding beans, climbing beans, uh, legumes that help to keep the soil, uh, keep a balance in the soil. And around banana plantation areas, then we also grow lemongrass as a natural bug repellent, right? And so that you don't have to spray your bananas disease-proof, disease-proof them just by planting a disease barrier around bananas. And uh, so it's these kind of techniques, they come and learn. We, we have five different species growing. We test them on different hillsides and showing people, well, if you have this kind of soil, here's what here's the species that works best for that. And then we've even, you know, we stretched in the coffee production of showing we have a about an acre of coffee that we're doing shade-grown coffee to show people that, you know, organic coffee really has value, right? Um, but you need to get the bigger bean size. And so by sh- shading them, by planting the hardwood species to cover as a cover crop over top of them, these bananas won't, I mean, these uh, coffee beans will, you won't get as many beans, but you'll get bigger beans, more marketable beans. And uh, so people come and they walk through all of our gardens and get inspired that we could do this. We could be growing coffee again and making more money on it. Or we could be, our bananas can come back to life. Our, whatever they're growing, passion fruits. So we've got a passion orchard and this works. So you're, you figured out the guilds around these different crops and help people understand the different things, that plants and stuff that work I should together. be using the permaculture language. You know, it doesn't sorry, matter if man. you do. I'm just I'm listening and thinking, well, okay, so yeah. you've got a banana guild, okay? Yes. And, but that's yeah. really valuable knowledge to spread because, and with the, co- the shade-grown coffee, if you've got a hardwood tree crop above the coffee, then you've got another thing of value that you can harvest at some point That's in the right. future. That's right. So you're stacking functions there as well. Tell, tell me more. 
well, we also, we've got a fish pond. So down where the bananas, they love water. And as we did the uh, berms on the land, that caused our water table to rise. So our bananas do better because there's more water on that part of the valley. And then uh, we have a swamp. And so we dug the swamp out. Instead of just wasted swamp, we made it into a fish farm. And we're growing tilapia on the top, catfish on the bottom. We're using a Malaysian technique where you put bamboo in about every foot, so a grid of bamboo. That means the, the eagles and, and other birds that would come, and, come in to uh, try to pull out a fish can't get in now to do it. And then also bamboo acts as a substrate that bacteria can grow on, algae can grow on. And so the tilapia will be self-feeding, right? They'll feed off of this. Tadpoles will be growing. The pond isn't sterile anymore. It's a living pond. And the catfish will come up and grab a mouthful of tadpoles. And so we're feeding less, putting less uh, food into the pond, and we're getting more out of it just because of the design of the pond. How did you learn how to do that? Well, we started with a swamp. <laughs> you know, you, all you need is a shovel, and a, you know, and you get started. And then, hey, the Internet's a great thing. You can read, read a little bit and go, man, we, you know, we failed. We put too many fish in and then heated up in the hot season, took all the oxygen. And so we learned that. And, uh, trial and error. Trial huh? and error. And, and, uh, and it's still, I've got seven or eight ponds now, and we're still trying different things. And, and we have the occasional failure. But we're teaching, the problem with large-scale farming, like the Chinese have come in, and it's very large-scale. We had a South African friend came in as well, and, and he was going to teach this amazing style of fish farming, and he was calculating out all the thousands of pounds of fish he was going to get, and did all the calculations. And But he's dealing with people who don't know how to do these kind of things, have never been experienced. And so one guy left the tap open when they were cleaning a tank, and there goes all his seedling fish. And, uh, you know, then uh, the, uh, the storm comes and rips off his greenhouse. And now he can't get the heat he needs. And, um, you know, it all failed. Uh, it was one trouble after the next. You know, a disease came in because there were too many fish. Or the electricity went out for five days. And there goes his pumps. And his fish died. And so we, we try to reverse it back to what will work in a village Without electricity, without anything fancy, this can sustain and do things small so that when you fail, you fail small. And, and you didn't lose everything. And, and that's the problem with this bigger Chinese model of fish farming. The, the guys will take and mortgage their farm or mortgage so much and they're already calculating the profit, but something goes wrong. And they, or they drain the pond and the fish aren't there. Something went wrong. And then they lose everything. And so uh, we're trying to bring it back to small scale. Interest, it's interesting to me that the, by keeping it at a human scale, you keep out the destructive banking systems. You keep out yeah. the interest-bearing banking that causes, has caused so much devastation in places all over the world in these type of communities because it's small. You don't need a big bank yeah. loan. You don't need to mortgage the farm and take all this risk. Your risk is it failed. We got a stinky pond. What do we do to f fix it now? You just keep moving forward. So uh, again, it's go. You're going into economic and social systems. Yes. Just by starting with clean water and then learning a little bit about plants. I mean, so you were four years into it when you got introduced to permaculture. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. 
So you were doing the water filters already? <laughs> We'd already started with filters, and that led us to bricks. And we just it, we just got on this uh, uh, treasure hunt of there are there has to be solutions that can be locally made. Hmm. And once we got on that journey, we got empowered. Is what really happened. Our right. mind shifted. Our heart shifted. And once we went on that amazing journey, it's going to be the rest of our lives. We're never going back. Mm-hmm. We're everywhere we go. We're looking for solutions. That, can we try it in Africa? Can we try it? You know, they want us to go to India now and start some filter factories. And uh, yeah, just people are requesting from all over. Can we do it in our village? And yes, it works. And we'll, and we'll give it away. Yeah, it'll work. We'll show you how to do it and get you started. It's, so with our fish farms, we found. Well, if I bring geese in, uh, geese are better than watchdogs. Another part of fish farming is that there's such desperate need in a village that if you have anything, you've got to protect it or they'll come and steal it from you. So we've had people come and steal the metal poles fencing because metal has a value, right? And where I'm looking at trying to protect things, they're just looking at, well, that metal pipe is worth 12 cents and I'm going to steal it so mm-hmm. I can get a look. the desperation. Uh, we had to change our attitude of let's just a, build, build a bigger wall and keep people out. We live in a village and they'd steal from us. They'd cut our trees down. I could hate them if I wanted to, but those are my neighbors and they're living a desperate life, you know, and, and uh, their mind is, you know, all they, all they can see is desperation. And so we began to say, no, the answer is actually to love our community. Turn the other cheek, even when they steal from you, or, and that's hard when you're living on the edge. But we began to seed water filters in all around our community. And uh, we built rainwater tanks so there was enough water. We fixed the boreholes. We invested in, and of course, I'm the wrong color skin for Africa. I'm a white guy, but they began to realize, no, this guy is just one of us. He loves us. And they began to protect our land, right? They be, they started to, when thieves had come, they say, no, don't, don't touch those guys. Those guys are part of us. And uh, I didn't need to, be to build a bigger fence. I needed to, to give away. I needed to build better neighbors. And uh, yeah, we still have a fence. And on occasion, we struggle with things. It's part of life. But our hearts change now. It just makes us want to give more. That that I just had an, an, a light go off as you said that it, you didn't need to build a bigger fence or wall. <laughs> you needed to develop relationship with your neighbors. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about world politics. Yeah, right? right. We want to build walls. We want. I mean, immigration is a huge issue right now. The problem I've been thinking about this a lot. The problem isn't that there's people migrating all over the world. The problem is there's these societies and governments that are so corrupt that they've created that kind of desperation and poverty that people have to risk their lives going across the ocean and then walking yeah, across yeah. Europe. So how do we, how do you bring that life into those nations so those nations can be habitable again? And you're saying that very, <laughs> you've got the right words around it. We've got the experience, but yeah, if we teach people at the grassroots village that your solution's right here. Your ground can produce. You can make a living. You can, you can prosper on this land. Uh, it shifts their minds and hearts. Instead of their land looking cursed, they only see the lack. Once their mind gets shifted, once that happens in their heart, 
uh, they see hope everywhere they go and they become spreaders of hope, right? Mm. Uh, they become, so our, our leaders, uh, are African leaders that go now to multiple nations around them and they're spreading the hope. This is how we changed our community. Look, we did this. Look, I have a couple cows and these are village people now going to other village people saying, you can change things, you can prosper. You don't have to go sit to the city. The answer isn't the cities are being just massive slums of people flooding in every single day and, and that has to shift, that's unsustainable. That's misery, you know. So it needs to shift back to more rural, at least a good percentage of people? People are going to need to stay on the land. And we're seeing, like, here in America, you drive down. We've been on the road uh, on pilgrimage here. We drive by farm after farm. Every bit of land is being used. Uh, it's amazing to see the, the, the industry of America. But you go to Africa and you don't see farms. You know, it's little bits here, little there. But you see just a bunch of bush. And they've got to learn that they can use the land they have. Uh, we also work in slum areas, so uh, addressing the slum problems is part of African life. Uh, we teach a, a form of square foot gardening called, we call it peri-urban gardening, or these slum area gardens that even in a slum we can teach you to uh, clean up your garbage pile, learn to compost, grow up the side of the, that little slum house, grow fresh get some fresh uh, herbs and vegetables into your kids. Uh, learn about hygiene, you know, getting clean waters apart. But once hope starts coming, these, these slum areas go from desperate people stealing from each other and mistrusting, community starts to be built. They work together for a community garden. And, the, you know, it, it, hope is contagious. It really does work. So it's changing, it's opening people's eyes to see the world in a different way. That's yeah. part of it. Now, as far as extreme, we have extreme poverty is one thing. Extreme violence that we're seeing, like the why people are leaving Syria in those areas. How does it, how does this change that? Well, we do our, you know, today my phone's ringing from Africa. Uh, we, our center in Atiak is just a few miles from the South Sudan border. And again, we're getting flooded with refugees. This has happened twice now. And I have my Kark Center leader, uh, Robert Achai, uh, email me saying, you know, we're taking these people in again. Um, so we use this as an opportunity. It is a burden. To, how are we going to feed people? How is this going to happen? We don't quite know right now, but uh, we use this as an opportunity that we'll take those people in suffering from violence, but we're going to train them. They're going to learn to do clean water. They're going to learn to fix a borehole. They're going to learn to do a rocket stove. They're going to learn some building technology. They, hey, come on, be a part of what you know, these, we don't look at them as refugees. We look at them, okay, God, you know, you're sent in, let's train you. So that when the peace comes, you can go back and take these things that will transform it. And we've had that happen over and over. So we're willing to bring people in and uh, send them back when the peace comes. So you've seen them go back and start to build these regenerative structures and systems in their, in their communities. And does that keep the violence out in the future? The, we currently have a Connect to Africa Resource Center in Congo, in Goma. It's still ruled by these uh, warlords. <laughs> the UN is still there. But uh, 
people get hope that they can solve their own problems. Uh, you know, the fact that filters are locally made, there's no, nothing to steal from it, right? You can't use corruption on it. Um, so oftentimes these guys only want to look where their money is. And if you, you bring things down to a level that you can do this with small money, it takes that initiative out of it. Of It's, it's locally made. You're taking the fuel out of the, yeah. of the power of the violence. Because in the Middle East, they take control of an oil field and all of a sudden they have lots of money to buy weapons with. Here, there's nothing to steal because it's all small. It's regenerative and it's life-giving for the people there, but it's not stockpiles of stuff to come and cart away. So there's no one coming to do that with guns anymore. Is, yeah. that, is that accurate? That would be accurate. Uh, so when we're opening our Congo Center... Here we have the district governor comes, and he comes with his private army, right? So here's this fleet of black bulletproof land cruisers, all polished. And here comes the guys with grenade launchers and rocket launchers and this private army that goes everywhere he goes. And uh, it was the first time we've ever had a Kark Center that was open with rocket launchers. And you're just <laughs> like, really? But that's, that's the level of violence there. And the answer is grassroots empowerment. The answer is simple local people who will, leaders who will actually lead and love their community. And then here's some technologies. Here's how you do it. And you do it one at a time. And it works. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. I'm just, I'm so filled with hope. <laughs> So tell us uh, where people can find you if they want to learn more about your organization. Well, uh, our website is connectafricaministries.org or .com. You'll find your way into us. And all the technologies are on that. And uh, you can donate online if this is something that stirs in your heart that you want to take part. It's real. It's happening. And we invite people, come connect with us. Come connect to Africa. Be a part of seeing this thing change. I will. Thank you very much. <laughs> right Have on. a great day. Thanks. And that was Trevor Tyshawn with guest host David Bilbrey. You can find more about David and his current work at ecothinkit.com. And if you'd like to see the work that Trevor and his family and others of Connect Africa Ministries are doing, you'll find them at connectafrica.us or by the link in the show notes. This episode reminds me of one of my favorite books, Save Three Lives, by Robert Rodale, in that he talks about what it's like to do work in Africa and create systems that can't be stolen, or that are hard to destroy and are truly resilient. And I remember a passage in there where he describes something that, as a permaculture practitioner, sounds very much like a food forest, and this multi-tiered garden around a house that doesn't look like it contains food, that is much different from the farm fields. And so when war or conflict comes and those fields are destroyed, very often the families still have something because of what they propagate around them that doesn't look like we would imagine and so doesn't garner the same interest. And I look at the work that Trevor is doing and how it's different from a lot of NGO work. And that building these structures the way that he has, the bio sand filters, as he illustrates in his own story, that there's something that's hard to steal because you can't just pick them up and take them somewhere. They're hard to break. 
and permanently put out a commission short of completely destroying them. Punching a hole through them may require more work to repair them, but it's still less work than building a new one. And by focusing on multiple small community-scale filters, that clean water continues to be available even if one is damaged. I was looking at some of the numbers on his website, and it works out that for every 75 liters of capacity, that that's enough clean water per day for four people. And so a single one of the 1,600 liter filters is good for over 80 people. And as he said, they can be built for $100. And most of that is the training that goes into creating them, that the actual physical structure is only 30. And I think about how important that training is. I'm reminded of the story by Joel Glansberg from his recent opening address from the Mid-Atlantic Permaculture Convergence about how in Haiti, when they were building hospitals, that they would bring in an expert to help them build it. But part of their job was to train two people in how to do the work. And so they're replicating these skills so that more people can be taught and this information can spread. Just as Trevor and Connect Africa have created eight of their Connect Africa resource centers and continue to grow and expand. And by doing so, are able to bring in more people and teach them and train them. And they're doing it at low cost, which is still the part that really blows my mind, that by placing themselves in Africa, Trevor, his wife, their children, that they can live very inexpensively and be able to do more good than if they were living full-time in the United States and trying to do this outreach from afar. And though permaculture came later, that it's still an active part of what they're doing, that they're integrating these ideas together and finding ways to continue to teach and share. Though this was a long episode, Trevor shared a great deal of his own story, and there's wisdom in it that we can apply whether we want to do international aid work or, or just practice more where we are to go out there and do the work so that earth, permaculture, people, and communities can all flourish. Whatever your journey, wherever you go, if there's any way that I can help you, feel free to give me a call, 717-827-6266. Send me an email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or drop something in the mail. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Until the next time, spend each day creating the world that you want to see for others and for yourself by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other. <laughs>